Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Revelation chapter 2 is what we're studying today, so that means this week your homework is Revelation chapter 3. Read it before next week to be prepared for what we're studying. But in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, the divine warrior, the Jesus that John showed us in Revelation chapter 1, is the one who's speaking to the churches. And that's really important. And I said this when we were starting off the service, I alluded to it. But I just want to touch briefly on the dangers of not worshiping the right Jesus. Jesus was a meek man who walked the earth clothed in humility. But that does not mean that he is insignificant. He was a man who spent time with sinners and healed the sick. He was not a man who rode in on a white horse the first time and overthrew a nation. He was a man who was here to conquer the great enemy, sin. But that does not mean because he didn't have a home and he wandered the countryside and he ministered to the insignificant that he is also insignificant. He came that way to teach us something about what is truly significant. And when he died and rose again, the vision that John gives us of that man is no longer the humble servant riding on the donkey. It is the divine warrior with a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his leg who is coming back in the clouds to judge the earth of their sin. Are you hearing me? It is important that that is the Jesus that we worship because if it is not, if the Jesus that you worship is some insignificant, small, little God that you created in your own mind and fashion, in your own image, then that God will never challenge you to change or grow because he looks like you. And what will happen is you will take that Jesus and you will apply that Jesus to everyone else and start expecting everyone else to conform to your image of Jesus, which is nothing more than your image of yourself. And you will demand that the world become like you and not like the risen Christ, the man with hair like white like wool and and eyes like flaming fire. That's the guy we're being conformed towards, not you. And it's important that we have that understanding and that image of Christ because that is the one who is speaking to his churches today. And that is the one who has authority to address the issues in his churches. Now, as we talked last week, there are seven churches that John is writing to, but he is not writing only exclusively to those seven churches. That number seven is a biblical symbolic metaphor, poetic word that essentially it's a number that means complete, wholeness, all of it, finished. And so when John is writing to seven churches, he selected seven to communicate that this message is to these churches, but not only to these churches. It is to all the church at all time. And so as we read Revelation 2 today, we're reading Christ's words to John, to these 
real churches who actually existed, but, is, but we are also listening to Christ's words to John to us because we also are real, we also are a real church that really exists, that really needs to hear the words of Christ to us, amen? With that in mind, let's get into it, Revelation chapter two. That ain't bad, a four minute introduction compared to my 30 minute introduction last week. (laughs) Revelation chapter two, starting in verse one. Jesus says to John, write this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here's the message to the church. I know your works. Whoa, that's scary. Because that means that Jesus knows your heart and what you're doing, and he's paying attention to it. He knows your toil and the patient endurance that this church is going through in the season of tribulation that they live in. And I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but they're not. And you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yikes. Let that sink in for a second. Let the warning from Jesus to the church sink in for a moment. That unless the church repents, the Lord Jesus will come and remove the lampstand from among that church, effectively removing their role as church where they live. You're not gonna be a lampstand, you're not gonna be a light, then I'll remove my light, and you'll be nothing more than an organization with a CEO. You'll be a gym club membership, paying your dues, coming to do your spiritual calisthenics, and then going home. Verse six, yet this you have You hated the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also have hated. Just pause there. That word's gonna come up again uh, to another church and we'll address the Nicolaitans uh, at that point, but let's keep going. He also hates the Nicolaitans. So verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's important. Did you catch that? 
Now the message to the church has now overflowed from the church to the churches. Here, church, what the Spirit of the Lord is saying now to you, to the one who conquers, which is a Greek word that basically means overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That's the end of the first letter to Ephesus. Now let's pause and go back through this letter and dissect it. But before we look at the letter for Ephesus, there's a couple things we need to examine that are common, not just in this letter, but to all seven letters. All seven letters are addressed to the angel of the church, which we talked about last week as a real legitimate angel who the Lord Jesus assigns to his church here on earth. The idea being that in some sense, churches have angels assigned to them. The roles of the angels seem to be a a role of message and a role of accountability. There is this divine being who is represented among the people and also represented up in heaven. That's one of the purposes of this divine being, to uh, be able to deliver messages, to be the oversight for this local church in a very spiritual sense. The other responsibility of the church is, or of the angel is protection. Those are the two kind of primary roles of angels in uh, the New Testament. Now, if you read through some commentaries or possibly you've heard this taught before that um, another understanding of who these angels are are not actual these uh, heavenly beings, but they're actually the pastors of these churches. The idea being that angels throughout the Bible have been predominantly messengers, the ones delivering the words of the Lord and therefore John in some metaphorical way is referring to, or Jesus is referring to through John, write the letter to the pastors of these churches, the angel, the one who's delivering the message. Uh, It's okay, I mean, it's not a bad interpretation. If you hold that, that's fine. I'm I'm not gonna kick you out of the church. The only problem that I have with it personally is that all throughout the book of Revelation, angels are always referred to as heavenly beings. And so if we're just gonna track with the Bible speaking for itself and not trying to read interpretation into it, um, then I'm gonna go with just angels. Now, be careful not to build too much of a theology, like, oh, do we all get our own little angel? Like, before I leave the, de- the, the day, should I, like, should I like high-five him and like pray to him? And like, no, 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 like, do not get into that weirdness of like praying to angels, and, like, they are a, Uh, representatives within God's kingdom, but they are there overseeing us and and watching the way we go and protecting us, but it's nothing more than that. You don't need to talk to them. If an angel tries to talk to you, it's probably a demon, ignore it. But as we go through this, you're gonna see this referenced often. This idea that um, an angel, the, the, the message of Jesus is speaking to the angel over the church, and Jesus is the one delivering this message to the angel. And in every letter to every church, some quality from the image of Jesus in Revelation 1 is referenced in the letter to the churches. So that's a common theme. It's always addressed to an angel in the church, and it's always 
associated with a specific divine quality of Jesus. In this one particularly, it's he's who's holding the seven stars in his right hand and the one who's walking among the seven golden lampstands. We saw that in Revelation chapter one. The next common theme you'll see in the letters is that all of them include an I know this about you, and some of them include an I have this against you. All of them have an I know, meaning God knows all and he's aware of what's going on. And some of them have, uh, I have this against you, which we just read. Not all the churches have that, but some of them have that, meaning there are some things that I know that you're on track, you're doing really well, but there's some other things that are real big issues that we need to deal with because if it's not dealt with, then I'm gonna come and deal with it. I'll give you time to deal with it, but if you don't, I'm gonna get involved in it and you won't like when I get involved in it, okay? Brothers and sisters, you know how it works within family? When you start fighting, you, go ahead, you need to go ahead and settle that because if dad walks in and he has to settle it, no one's gonna be happy when he settles it. Well, except for him. But neither one of the kids will be happy. So you have this I know, I have this against, and then you have this call to repent and then conquer or the uh, ESV, which is the translation that I typically read from, English Standard Version, says conquer. This is huge. Every letter to every church ends this way. Some encouragement to repent and conquer. Why is it so important for the churches to conquer and overcome? Because overcoming is evidence of your allegiance. See, when you start reading into this, you can read into the text, okay, well, overcoming would mean that, like, you know, I need to conquer, I need to overcome. Like, if I want to inherit salvation, I've got to do the work to conquer and overcome. That's not what it is. Overcoming, the encouragement to conquer, is simply evidence of what team you're playing for. And we talked about this last week. The Revelation is gonna to present to us two teams. There is Team Lamb and Team Dragon, and there are no, there are no other teams. There's, just, there's only two teams. I didn't say it, John said it in Revelation. And how you know whose team you play for is demonstrated in the way that you either overcome or you give in. I'm gonna use this word a lot today assimilate. You either overcome this world, you don't buy into their systems, you don't let their stuff get in you and start shaping your heart and your mind, you overcome or you assimilate and you get into the culture and you let it get inside you. How do you know what team you're playing for? Who do you know? How do you know where your allegiance lies? The book of Revelation would encourage you to think about it like this. Are you overcoming this world or do you love this world? Are you overcoming this world and its systems and its cultures and, and, and uh, the, the, the way that the enemy has infused uh, darkness into the systems of this world? Do you, are you overcoming that stuff or are you just assimilating into it and just letting parts of it come into your life and blend with this thing that you call Christianity and on the other side you've got something that just looks nothing like what any of the apostles taught in the Bible. It doesn't look anything like the message of Jesus. It's got some of the message of Jesus, but it's not the message of Jesus. 
So at the end of every letter, there's this encouragement to repent if you're not following in step with Jesus and then conquer. So let's look at the message to Ephesus. What is Jesus saying to the angel in Ephesus? He's saying, I know your works and your labor and your endurance and your discernment. I know your Bible knowledge. I know you are a bunch of folks who love the word of God. You love when it's taught. You love to study it. You love to read it. You've got little libraries at home filled with commentaries on it. You love it. You, every time an apostle comes into town, you're judging whether this apostle is a true apostle. You want him to come speak at your church. You invite him over to your house for dinner. You let him speak to your kids. You let him pray over your family. You know the difference between right and wrong. You love Jesus. You love the word. The only problem is I have this against you you abandon the love that you had at first. Now this is an interesting text, because I've personally heard it taught many different ways what it means to lose your first love. A common understanding that I've heard taught often uh, is this idea that you fell out of love with Jesus, that you are you are deeply in love with the things of Jesus and his word and, and studying and Bible studies and worship team and all that. And you, you love doing all the stuff that is peripheral around Jesus, but your heart just kind of drifted away from him. I don't hate that. There's another interpretation I came across that I felt was kind of interesting this week. Is by a guy named G.K. Beale, and it's in his uh, commentary, the New International Greek Testament. And he says that his understanding of abandoning the love you had at first is becoming a lack of witness in the city in which they were called. And his understanding of this is because the punishment for that is losing your lampstand, which essentially means that we talked about this last week. Lampstands are this symbol of being a light in a dark place. It used to be the temple, but now Christians are temple, and we are viewed as lampstands. Churches are viewed as lampstands. That was from Revelation 1. And so the idea that the church in, the lo in, in any local city is supposed to be a light in the darkness, supposed to be a city on a hill. And once, you, once you abandon that original call that you had of being a light in a dark world, well, that's the one thing that you were told to do, like be a light in a dark world. So if you're not doing that one thing, like I'm gonna remove your lampstand, I'm gonna remove you being a witness among those people. I don't hate that either, that, that's good, right? That ain't bad. But as I'm reading through this, here's, a, here's another one. You guys remember when we did the John series just a couple of weeks ago, Second John chapter six, where John tells us that love is obeying his commandments. Remember that? So when Jesus says you abandon the love you had at first, it might just be that his love that they abandoned were these some original commandments that they once followed, but now we're no longer following. And it could be something as simple as, man, like the Lord commanded me to love my enemy. And I was really good at that when I first got saved, but I kind of got tired of it. And now I just, I love everyone who looks like me, but I don't have time for my enemy. I've abandoned some of these commandments that I was really good at following when I first started, but now nah, I don't really have time for. That ain't bad. So there's a little bit, at least on my part, a little ambiguity with what it means to abandon your first love. And I think, at least for me, 
the application rests in that ambiguity. Because I think what the angel is trying to say through the message or what Jesus is trying to say to the angel to the church is this. There are some things that you were dedicated to when you first came to salvation that because you just abandoned them or stopped doing them or got disinterested in them, you got focused on these other things that I applaud you for, but you started acting like these previous things are not important and you're not getting to them because these other things are important. Look, there's stuff that that needs to be done right now, Jesus. I'll focus in on this, and this is the stuff I like doing anyway. And so the things you commanded me to do that I don't really like doing, I won't spend much time doing. But, But I'll be really faithful in this other stuff. And so what you see is that this church is growing in their faith and devotion, but they're starting to abandon the original things that they that they obeyed at the beginning. And this is why it's important for us to listen to the end when he says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because as Christians, as we grow, we also have a tendency, just like this church, to start abandoning things that were really important to us when we first got saved, but now we somehow just don't have time for, or we think are less important. Here's a couple examples. Maybe you prefer Bible studies over evangelism. I've got time to give up my evening to go over to a small group and break bread and eat, but man, I just like... I don't have time at work to talk through this, to talk through Jesus with this guy. Well, you do understand, like, it's not an either or, it's a both and. You don't abandon one because because another is really important. Like, you're supposed to do both. Here's another one. Um, I'm really, really committed to serving and I'm really, really busy, so I've just kind of abandoned that first love of prayer that I had, that first commandment to, to, to pray like this. I'm really caught up in this one thing so I don't have time for this other thing. How about your desire to place convictions over compassion? What do you, what do you mean? I mean that real fiery spirit you've got to make sure that you tell everybody what they're doing wrong, but you've kind of abandoned that, that, that compassion you have in which to deliver it, or, or maybe the opposite, maybe you've leaned so much into compassion and you just wanna feel all these things for all these people that you don't have any conviction anymore. Do you see, do you see the difference? Like, like there's two ends of the spectrum, everyone's guilty. I'm, so, I'm just so committed to what is right, I don't know how to say it nice or I just want to be nice to everybody. I won't tell them what's true. I can't hold to things that are true because I don't want anybody to see me as unkind. Look, I got bad news for you. If you're in the middle of this whole Jesus thing, no one's gonna like you. Even, even his own family, they're not gonna like you most days. You got, you got all the disciples following around Jesus for three years, and what are they constant? Like, literally, months before Jesus is going up to the cross, three years in this whole thing, what are, the, what are the disciples fighting about? Who's gonna sit at the right hand? Who's gonna be elevated above the other ones? They're still fighting like brothers. And Jesus like, look, they hated me first, so don't be caught off guard if you go out into the world and you say what I told you to say and you spread my love and you tell them that there is a better way than what they've been choosing and they don't like you. That, that's what we call normal. So he ends this letter 
with an invitation to really hear what he's saying. Hear what Jesus is saying to his churches. What is he saying? Repent of selective obedience. Do you like that one? <laughs> Whoo! Jesus. A little Pentecostal section down here. <laughs> Repent of selective obedience. You don't get to choose what you obey and what you disobey. You have to overcome the temptation to give on one side to gain on another. Hear me, you cannot continue to go through life thinking to get an advance means you have to let go of the things of God. The things you're letting go of as you grow and mature in the Lord are the things of this world, not the things of God. If you have too much you're holding, if you, if you can't manage it, the first things you start cutting bait on are the things of this world, not the things of God. And the reason why is because compromise always lose, leads to the same thing. Compromise, choosing one thing over the other, always leads to the same thing. Losing your status as lampstand wherever God has called you. This is what it looks like, church. It looks like this. For the church, corporate church, and church individual, as, you, as church gathered and church scattered, this is what it looks like. When you go out into the world and you start compromising on your convictions for compassion, or you start compromising on con compassion for conviction, what you do is you remove your status as lampstand. No one sees you as light because you look like darkness. If you're not being light, the only other thing there is is darkness. So when you start selectively obeying, you look nothing more like the world. What do I mean by that? I mean it doesn't take Jesus resurrecting from the dead for you to try and be nice and kind to people. So you can be a non-believer and be kind. But if you are a believer, kindness overflows from the kindness that was shown to you. You see the difference? See, believers and non-believers can be kind, but the motivation, the source of that kindness are drastically different. And so if people don't understand the source of the kindness, you're just lumped into the pile with a bunch of other kind non-believers. You, you remove your status of lampstand because you're not illuminating anything. You just look more like the world. And so Jesus is saying to these churches, repent of selective obedience and do the things I told you to do at the beginning. Those are just as important as the things that you're doing now at the end. Let's go on to Revelation chapter two, excuse me, verse eight. He says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The Lord, excuse me, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Another uh, connection to Revelation chapter one. I know your tribulation and your poverty, even though you're rich. I know your poverty, but you're not really poor. Spiritually, you're abundant in wealth. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Wow. Hmm. We're not pulling any punches in Revelation, are we? <laughs> Synagogue of Satan. What is he talking about? Well, I'm not gonna go deep into this, but 
uh, historical writings from the late first century, early second century in the church tells us that what was happening in these churches is that, um, see, Christianity wasn't viewed as its own religion. It was viewed as the ultimate fulfillment of everything it was to be a Jew. Like they had been waiting on this Messiah and he finally showed up, right? Now, now Gentiles are being invited in and that was kind of the rub. That, that was the issue. And so what was happening in these cities is that in order to gain favor with Rome, with the nation, the Jews who were not believers were turning in believers to the Romans so that they would be removed out of the picture. At this time, there was immense tribulation. Christians were being persecuted, fed to lions, killed on a regular basis, and the Jews were happy to sign up on Team Roman and turn in their Jewish brothers and sisters who believed in Jesus in order to gain favor with the nation. Synagogue of Satan is what Jesus calls those folks. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. I don't like that. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I prayed a prayer to be a Christian because some man during a Revival service told me that if I didn't, I'd go to hell. I didn't know it was gonna be like thrown in prison. There'd be tribulation and I might even die. I don't know why I had signed up for that. Well, you were conned and you were sold a false gospel because that's absolutely what the people of God signed up for. Because we're a peculiar people who are different than this world. And as we're lampstands and shining light in dark places, you know what the dark doesn't like? Being illuminated. You know what the kingdom of darkness hates? Having their works exposed. So here's a promise to this church. You're gonna suffer and most of you will die. Praise the Lord. But when you do, you will receive the crown of life. I mean, I'll take that crown any day. Verse 11, he says here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Personally, this is my favorite letter, I like it. There's no I have this against you because the church is just going through it and they're faithful. So let's go through it. To the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation at the hands of the Jews, I know your physical poverty, I know your suffering, but do not fear. That's the encouragement. Rather than I have this against you, the word of the Lord to this church is, do not fear. You are spiritually wealthy and you will be tested and you will suffer, but do not fear. Man, if I had three hours to teach on not fearing, I won't do that today. <laughs> but I will say this. There is nothing that grips human beings quite like fear of death. You can go through a lot, but don't take my life. Except that Jesus conquered that and you don't have to fear.
He says, you're gonna be tested for 10 days. And that is a database reference to the Old Testament. Remember we talked about databases last week? This is a database reference back to Daniel chapter one, verse 12. There was these Jewish boys who were brought into the kingdom of Babylon and they were told, hey, we're going to uh, indoctrinate you into our systems. We're gonna give you new names. Uh, We're gonna teach, imagine if the schools did that, right? Like you send your kids to school, we're gonna give you a different name. I'm not gonna call you that anymore. Imagine if if schools did that. Wouldn't that be weird? You didn't get it. indoctrinating your children, teaching them different systems, saying that, look, it doesn't matter what you grew up with. We're going to teach you our ways. We're going to teach you about astrology. And we're going to teach you about our gods, the real gods. And we're just going to, we're, we're going to teach you and train you. And what did the children, what did Daniel and his friends do? They said, okay. But they drew a line in the sand, which is fascinating to me. They had no problem being called different names. They had no problem studying astrology and they had no problem studying, getting the na- and understanding all these names. They had no problems, but, but, they, but they drew the line in the sand. We're not going to serve your gods. I'll be aware of them. I know what they're called. I know their names. You want to call me something different. It doesn't really matter. But I do, I, I do still serve the one true God. And I don't need to assimilate myself into your culture so much that what you're putting out, I consume into my body. I don't want to defile my body with all the delicacies of this world. So you can teach me and I can reproduce answers for a test, but it's not really getting in me. And as a symbol of that, I'm not going to let your food get in me. And so they, they asked for a test. They said, listen, we don't want to eat the king's food. That was symbolic. That wasn't just like, I don't like cake. Like everyone loves cake, right? You never met somebody that doesn't like cake. So they loved cake. What they were saying is I don't want the excess, the delicacies. I don't want to assimilate into the culture where I sit down and I participate in these festivals where I have to call Nebuchadnezzar God just to eat dinner. I'm not, I'm not down with that. So how about we just eat vegetables and we'll do a test for 10 days. The 10 day test was designed to prove that serving Yahweh doesn't make you weaker. It actually makes you stronger. That's the test. And what John is drawing on, what Jesus is communicating to the church, is this same idea. Let's pull from the database about somebody else who was a person of God that was tested for 10 days. What was the purpose of the test? The purpose of the test was to demonstrate that even though suffering will continue for 10 days, on the other side of it, what's gonna be proved is that serving Yahweh will make you stronger. This is, this is what I want you to think, church in Smyrna. I want you to think in line of, uh, in terms of Daniel's and his friends being tested. This is going to be, a, it's probably not literally 10 days. It's, it's, it's metaphorical. It's this, it's, this, it's this database reference to help them understand that you're, you're just the next group of people in a long line of God's people being tested and tried. And what I want on the other side of this is that the world understands that it doesn't matter what kind of tribulation comes our way, it's only going to make us stronger and demonstrate that God's ways are better, not worse. So you can crush us, you can kill us, but this isn't going away. If crushing and killing made it go away, then it should have stopped in the first century. We, we shouldn't still be sitting here talking about it today. Have you thought about that? Jesus taught this to 12 guys, and we're in here today, over 2,000 years later, still talking about this. Maybe there's something to it. 
Maybe there's something to God's ways of crushing and persecuting in that proving that his ways are better. Maybe the crushing, the tribulation, the persecution in God's wisdom is an invitation of the world to stop persecuting and crushing and to turn and repent. So listen to what Jesus is saying to his churches. Be faithful. Be faithful all the way to the very end. Hear me. This isn't important for right now. You might not need this for another 30 years, but please, please take this and file it somewhere back in the back of your mind. So that if this world continues to descend in a downward spiral and the king of darkness continues to have his way and the nations rage against him and his anointed and his, and his followers and things turn where we live now to look very similar to how it looks in other countries where it's against the law to be Christians and someone is standing before you with a gun to your head about to put a bullet in your brain and they're asking you, will you turn your back on Jesus? Please remember this moment of me standing up here and pleading with you, don't change teams. Do not forsake your allegiance, not for any offer. Don't let any man beg you or convince you or trick you into changing teams. Do not forsake the lamb. Even if you go through tribulation, even unto the point of death, do not turn your back on the risen Christ. If you don't, you will be promised that you will share in eternal life. You will receive the crown of life. What does that mean? It means if you don't switch teams and you don't, over, uh, you don't compromise, but instead you overcome, overcomers will inherit eternal life. He says you won't be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? The second death is eternal punishment. I don't know who said this, I tried to look it up, but I've heard this before. Those who are born once die twice, but those who are born twice only die once. You've gotta be born again, and if you are, you are promised that you will overcome. Let's go to the next one. Verse 12, it says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Most theologians think that's probably a reference to the massive throne to Zeus in the city of Pergamum. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas when faith, my faithful witness when he was killed among you where Satan dwells. It was a believer who was martyred for his faith. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who, be, who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also some of you who hold the teach of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. 
If not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. That is at the top of my list of things I don't ever want to have to deal with. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So to the church in Pergamum, I know that you live in a corrupt town filled with bloodshed, but you're faithful. But I have this one thing against you, and that is that you are permitting false teachers to deceive the people in the churches. I, I, have, that, I have that issue, that you're letting false teachers come in and deceive God's people in such a time of tribulation. And he describes this deception with an Old Testament reference, a database poll on the story of Balaam. And he blends that with the Nicolaitans. Now, historically, we don't really know anything about the Nicolaitans. There is no archeological evidence that would lead us to this group. We don't know what they are. Probably they were some offshoot weird denomination that birthed. That's kind of seems like a thing we Christians do. Like we like splitting and making denominations. So like, you know, there's the, do you go to the Nicolaitan church? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't bother with them. But they're lumped in together with the teachings of Balaam because both of them lead to the same thing, which is more sexual immorality and worshiping idols. So though, though we don't have any archeological evidence or understanding of who they were or what they did, the text gives us enough information to help us understand that they were probably a group of people who were teaching something very similar to what we understand about Balaam. And we do have some information about him. So this is a database reference back to Numbers chapter 22 through verses, or through chapter 31. It's kind of a strange story and I, I highly recommend you go back and read it because it's a hoot. Uh, there's talking donkeys. I mean, it's got everything. But essentially, the summary of the story is that the king of Moab had hired Balaam, this guy, to go and curse Israel before they started coming into the land. Well, hilarity ensues, and it didn't work. So at the end of the plan that didn't work... Balaam hatches another plan in order to curse the Israelites. If he can't curse them with his mouth, then he can curse them through deception. And so what he does is he infiltrates into the camp of Israel and he starts convincing some of the key leaders to go over and participate in Moab sexual worship practices. I imagine Balaam coming and he's like, you know, what's up, Joshua, how are you? Hey, Balaam, I'm fine. Why are you here? He's like, I don't know. I was just walking around, and uh, those Moab girls are pretty, aren't they? Josh was like, yeah, no, you mentioned it. The little cat-eye liner thing they do. They just are perfect, you know? It's just it's good. I like it. It's like, you know, they're having a party tonight. They're going to be worshiping like their false god, but, you know, there's some, you, you know, those Moabites, they're wild, uh, and so their parties to their gods, they kind of lead to you know, some sexual escapades. Um, I'm going tonight, you wanna go? This is not in the Bible, this is my paraphrase. <laughs> but it's, imagine how it, I imagine this is probably how it went down. I'm barely, I'm 90% confident on this. So Moab convinced Joshua to go over. Joshua just has a, 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 an unbelievably sinful night. He goes back and tells his friends, eventually this starts spreading. And before you know it, compromise, compromise is spreading like wildfire all through Israel. And what does God do when, God, when his people start compromising? He curses them with a plague. 
bam, Balaam fulfills his end goal to curse the people of Israel. But he didn't do it head on. He did it by infiltrating and convincing them to come in and compromise, to assimilate into this foreign culture. And what we see is the false teachers in, per- false teachers in Pergamum are doing the exact same pe- thing. They're teaching the people to start compromise. You can, you can, you can participate in the, in, the, in the yearly festivals about Zeus. You, 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 can, you can participate in the imperial uh, um, uh, uh, worship, uh, the imperial cult. You can go, it's not a big deal to say, oh, you know, God, Caesar is God. What are you really saying? It doesn't really matter. It's not a thing of allegiance. You're just doing it just to get by. In some of these cities, there were these guilds that if you wanted to be a silversmith or you wanted to be a woodworker, you had to participate in these guilds, which meant you had to go to the guild parties. You had to worship these guild gods. You had to participate in order to function and have your own small business. And these people are infiltrating, saying, man, it's not a big deal. Just go in and just like, just kind of dress like them, act like them, talk like them. And what this does is it starts infiltrating in the church and eventually there's no more line that we're holding. There's no more truth. There's nothing that that separates us from the non-believer. We're doing the exact same thing. So what has Christ even saved us to? We're doing the same things we used to be. And so these teachings are being infiltrated into the church and the Spirit is saying to the church, you can't continue to practice these acts and also call yourself a Christian. You can't hold Jesus' hand with your left hand and also try to play nice with the culture on your right. It doesn't work that way. You can't assimilate into the culture and let this culture start to shape you. And the reason why is because this culture has an agenda, it has an appetite, and it never stops. And it plays for keeps. Once you say yes to this, you'll say yes to the next thing because the compromise is, well, well, if you said yes to this, what's the difference in this? I guess there is no difference here. (laughs) Well, come over here and participate in this. Well, I certainly can't do that. Well, if you said no to it, you said yes to that. Like, what's the difference? Well, I mean, I see your point. There, there is no difference. And then pretty soon, you are no longer a person who's holding any light in any culture because you look just like the culture. And it's a slow decline. And I think we as a church need to hear what this Jesus is saying to the churches because I see this all the time. The culture starting to infiltrate the church and the church is just willing and able to let themselves assimilate into the culture. I see this in what I like calling Hollywood church. My words. You can use them if you want. But Hollywood church. And I don't mean just like the outward demonstration of it, you know, with like these weird pastors out on the West Coast that look like Justin Bieber lookalikes. I'm talking about the things that they, that they talk about. I'm talking about the things that they're inviting each other into. Man, come over here. Like, like you, don't, you don't have to forsake much to come and follow Jesus. Look, I look just like the world. You can come and be cool. You can follow Jesus and still be cool. Like, I got an issue with that. You can't follow Jesus and look cool. You can't. 
Because what he's calling you to isn't this world's version of cool. It's not cool to forsake this world. It's not cool to say, I've had enough of these, this, these, this television and these movies. I've had enough of, 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 of half-naked women being presented to me every time I try to watch a football game. I, I, I don't watch football games, but I imagine that's probably a thing. The, the, <laughs> There's this idea that, that we as a church don't have to say no to anything because if we just keep saying yes to everything, then more people will show up and more people will show up and then they'll hear the gospel. But my question is what gospel they're hearing? Because what you're selling when you compromise on everything is nothing more that the world is selling. It turns into nothing more than just a simple, like a TED talk on Sunday morning or an encouragement. It, there, there's no conviction, there's no call, there's, there's no talk of hell, there's no call to, to repentance, there's no conversations about sin, or, or, or holiness. There's no emphasis on prayer or submitting yourself to somebody else's standard. There's just an invitation, man, come one, come all, and don't leave anything. Man, we're just, we're just, a, we're just a church of broken people for broken people, and we'll just stay on broken people. Come on, broken people. Everybody can come, but you don't have to change anything. And we'll all look cool while we're doing it. I just, I look at, I look at news reports of just what's being sold to the church and it just makes me want to throw up. There's this concept of like the tech startup church. It's just like, man, let's just get a bunch of people in a room and let's get, let's get to 1,000 people by the end of the month and let's, let's start multi-siting and let's start rebuilding this out and we'll, build, we'll put some laser lights up and man, like what are you even talking about? You lost me. Do you even know, have you read the Bible? Have you read all of it? This is the message that Jesus is saying to the churches. Culture devours because there's something behind culture. There's something fueling it. And you should think about it like a dragon. There is a dragon fueling the culture. And if you're not careful, it will infiltrate into the church and it will lead people astray. They will start worshiping idols of Jesus and have no clue who the real guy is. And that reference to the hidden manna and the white stone, it's, it's another Old Testament database reference. Let's get into verse 18 in Thyatira. This is the last church for today. And this is the one that I think is probably the, the saddest to me. He says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God whose eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Man, that's better than Ephesus. They're still doing the things from the beginning, they're, they're, but, but they're even increasing them. Verse 20, but, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent to her sexual immorality. Behold, I'm gonna throw her onto a sick bed. Uh Uh-uh, I don't want none of that. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Oh no, even the ones who are following her teachings? Yep, those two. And all of the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call or the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only this, hold fast what you, hold fast what you have until I return. Because the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as, with, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the church in Thyatira, man, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your endurance, your growth, but I have this one thing against you, that you're allowing yourselves to be manipulated and seduced by Jezebel. Now, this is another Old Testament database reference, and it's pulling from 1 Kings chapter 16 through about verse, chapters 21. There was this woman named Jezebel, who she was a foreign queen who worshiped foreign gods, but the king of Israel, Ahab, married her. And the first thing she did when she came in is she brought her worship of Baal and all of her prophets. She brought them into the kingdom. She murdered all of the, of the prophets of Yahweh and instilled her prophets as the prophets of the nation. And the first things they started doing once all the God prophets were gone, were they started implementing these places of worship up on the high places on these mountains these places of sexual worship, these places where you would go and you would actually perform sexual acts with prostitutes as symbols of worship. You would worship your God through sex. This is what she did. She brought this sexual culture into Israel. And what, the, what Jesus is saying to the church is that this manipulation of power structures to water down God's commands for the end goal of more sexuality in church is something I have an issue with. Now Jezebel died many years before, so she's not actually living during this time. But as you'll start seeing when we start getting into this imagery of Babylon, these people, these nations, they have ideals and they're fueled by demonic power. And that demonic power hasn't left and those ideals only get stronger through the years. And so Jezebel isn't a real woman living today. She is embodied by some women in this church who are trying to teach the men and the women of this church that they can participate in extramarital relationships and it's not a big deal. You don't have to take sexual sin that serious. I know that God said that that sex is between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And anything outside of that is considered sin. I don't care if it's heterosexual sex outside of marriage. I don't care if it's homosexual sex outside of marriage. I don't care if it's transgenderism outside of marriage. It doesn't matter. Anything outside of this thing that God gave us is considered sin, all of it. Jezebel comes and says, yeah, but... Our whole culture is saturated with it. Let's assimilate a little bit. Some of that isn't so bad. What's the big difference if you look at pornography? So what? It's only once a week. It's only once a month. But the problem is what we just talked about. That stuff, it doesn't stop with once a week, once a month. 
It has an appetite because it's fueled by the dragon. And then once a week turns into once a day, turns into three times a day, turns into your, your entire relationship with your wife changes because you don't look at her the same way anymore. You hear what I'm saying? This stuff builds on itself and it consumes everything because it has an insatiable appetite. It doesn't stop. And this stuff is infiltrating into the church. And I see it in what I like calling it, I call it spring break church. This idea that like the invitation to church is that we have, uh, what we have is a selection of, of, of young women who are maritable age. And, uh, and they dress kind of skimpy and, and the guys, man, they, they're always just, man, they just, they look built and they spend a lot of time at the gym and they show it off when they, on Sunday. And so essentially what Sunday morning turns into uh, is just like an episode of America's Next Top Model. Everyone's trying to outdo one another. And where is Christ in the midst of that? Well, we'll, we'll get to him. I'll share a quick story. I hope I don't embarrass my son. Oh, he's not in here, so it's fine. So my oldest son, he works at Blaze here in town. And he, was, he told me that he was working a shift this past week. And a couple people came in, ordered pizza, sat down. He walked over, striking up conversation, finds out these two people are pastors. And he says, oh man, I, you know, I, I wanna go into the ministry. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. You know, you go, to, you go to church somewhere? Yeah, I go to church somewhere. And he goes, you know, d- could, could I, th- these two gentlemen, pastors, uh, said, man, we, we would love to invite you to our college group. And my son's like, oh yeah, cool. Like I, I'm, I love talking about the Bible with a bunch of college students. And this is the next thing I was, we'd love to invite you to our college group. There's a lot of pretty young girls there. Are you kidding me? And my son said, I, I walked away feeling like I needed to take a shower. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you, you do. Because there's a problem if your primary evangelistic tool for getting people into your church is we got pretty girls. But that's not uncommon. That is very common. That's a problem. Man, you should come check out our, our, our college group, man. We, we love Jesus. <laughs> we magnify him above all other things. We got pretty girls. Is there anywhere in the New Testament, the book of Acts, where, where Paul is going to a new city and he's planting churches and inviting people to church? He's like, man, you should come check out our church. Man, we got pretty girls. Or, man, we got good music. We got good things for your kids. No, that's never been an invitation in the planning of the churches. The invitation is always the same. Forsake your life and come to Jesus. Well, what do I get? What do you mean, what do you get? You get Jesus. That's what you get. That's, isn't that enough? No, that's not enough. Well, then this thing isn't for you. You love this world too much. Jesus is talking to the, 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 the wealthy uh, man, and he's, he comes and he's like, oh, Jesus, I've done everything. Like, what must I do to be saved? He's like, I fulfill all the commandments. He says, go and sell everything you have. He's like, what? Do you have to sell everything you own in order to follow Jesus? No, that was never a command that he gave anybody. But he gave that command because he knew that that is the stumbling block. That command revealed the kid's heart. So what's revealing our hearts? What's revealing our churches? What has infiltrated? What have we allowed Jezebel to infiltrate in our churches that has changed the sexual dynamic of our church? That the meeting of God's people has become your opportunity to lust the flesh. It's disgusting.
And what Jesus is saying to those churches is repent, conquer, and if you do, you will receive eternal life. So let's close on this. Listen to what Jesus is saying to the churches. One, don't abandon his commandments as you grow. Two, don't run from tribulation or look for shortcuts to switch teams when times get tough. Three, don't let the idolatry of this world devour you into compromise. And four, don't fall for the manipulation and seduction of sexual sin because it will own you and rule you and never leave. It wants all, not some, all. It wants all of your mind. Those are the warnings, the commands from Jesus, and he ends with this overcome. Don't fall for that stuff. Instead, overcome. Overcome this world. Don't submit to the dragon. Follow the lamb. Stay faithful. Love God. Love your neighbor. Endure tribulation. Don't give in. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Because at the end of the age, when all of this is done, and you are done being persecuted and done suffering tribulation, done going through all of it, when it's all said and done, I promise you, church, it will be worth it. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.